Welcome back to the Travel and Adventure Photography School podcast. This is episode number three, and I'm your host, Robert Massey. Thank you so much for joining me today. We are going to be doing part two of our Canadian Winter Photography Special. Part one was published last week, and you can go back and give it a listen if you like. But we talked about all things preparation, the type of gear you should be looking for, clothing you should have, things you need in your backpack to get out and really enjoy a day shooting in beautiful wintry conditions. For part two, which is happening today, right here, right now, we are going to actually talk about the act of taking photographs in snowy and cold conditions. So to talk about taking photographs today, we're going to kind of cover this in three different parts today. Part one will be some of the adverse conditions that you have to watch out for and how you can deal with them. Part two will give you some ideas of great photos and great ways you can use snow and ice and the cold weather to create some really spectacular images. And part three will just give you a little idea of what to do when you are heading home to help prevent a common problem that can occur with your camera gear. Alrighty, let's just get right into it right off the bat with part number one. One of the biggest challenges that you're going to find when you're out taking photos in wintry conditions is actually caused by the snow layer lying on the ground. If you're out taking photos when the sun is out and there is a layer of especially fresh white powder laying on the ground, you're going to find out that that snow layer creates a giant reflector. And this can kind of be a problem on two fronts for you. If you shoot a lot with auto exposure modes, um, like shutter speed priority and aperture priority, or just full auto, your camera's metering system can be tricked by that light reflection. It will typically end up thinking that that scene is way more exposed than you're actually wanting it to be. Now there's kind of two ways to solve that problem for you. Way number one is to shoot in full manual. So take full control over the camera yourself and make sure that you dial in that exposure properly. Your camera has no say over what it thinks it should be and that light metering system that most cameras have in them, like that you can see through your viewfinder, will likely be being tricked as well. So if you can, take a couple test shots and just learn how to read a situation in front of you when you're shooting in manual mode. Way number two, if you don't know how to shoot in manual or if you really enjoy shooting in aperture or shutter speed priority mode, which I understand there's a lot of good situations where I love to use one of those two modes, then you need to learn how to use your exposure compensation. So you need to be able to tell your camera, oh no, you think this is overexposed by a stop. I got to tell you, you've actually got to underexpose that auto exposure by a stop as well. And you can really quickly make adjustments by learning how to use your camera's exposure compensation modes. Staying with that for a moment, it even matters if you are shooting on your smartphone, like an iPhone or a Google Pixel or a Samsung, because those cell phone cameras tend to be tricked a lot easier by scenes than a DSLR or a mirrorless does. I couldn't tell you the technical reason behind why. This is just an anecdotal thing I find with my iPhones and a couple of other phones I've shot on is that they tend to read scenes thinking they need a lot more light than they actually do. And so if you're just, if you're taking photos on one of these devices, you really got to pay attention to that happening and you have to learn how to change the exposure on there for yourself. There are a number of ways to take over control depending on the different smartphone that you have. And there are a lot of very cool apps that you can download that give you full control over your cameras though you're shooting with 
you know, a mirrorless or an SLR, you can get full manual control over your smartphone. And it's well worth looking into a few of those apps. We'll do a review of a few of them in the very near future here, along with the iPhone 11 Pro Max, because I've been playing with my new cell phone here for the last week, roughly. And once I've had a little bit more time to play with it, we'll do a review on the iPhone 11 Pro Max and see how I think it functions as a content creator camera, not just for photographers, but for those of us who are trying to create content on the fly while we're out doing awesome things. But until then, try and explore with your cell phone settings and see how you can change that exposure yourself. And the nice thing is it's gonna take place live directly in front of you because it's your cell phone. And that makes it a lot easier to adjust things fairly quickly. All right, on to tip number two. And this one has to do with your camera's autofocus. Now, I know cameras have spectacular autofocus systems in them today. I love mine, use it a ton, but they can still be fooled pretty easily by certain things happening. This becomes a particular problem when you are taking photos in a snowstorm or the wind kicks a ton of snow up in front of your subject. That can really trick your camera's autofocus and it can cause it to do basically one of two things. It's going to cause it to focus hunt which is essentially when your camera can't find a focal point and it starts, well, hunting for one, it starts searching back and forth for one. And it really, even if it lands on focus point, I tend to find once my camera focus hunts, it doesn't typically actually get sharp focus. It's more just generally guessing at what should be in focus in the picture. The other thing that tends to happen is that you just get the wrong thing in focus, which admittedly can lead to some really cool artistic photos, but you need to be careful because you might not get the subject and focus that you were expecting, or you might not get the picture that you were expecting. Now, there's really only one consistent way that I have found around this issue when your camera starts focus hunting, or it flat out just focuses on the wrong subject. And that's to take my camera into manual focus. Now, this is a huge advantage that those of us who shoot on a mirrorless or a DSLR have over those people who have phones. Unfortunately, I don't really know of a phone that can do manual focus in the way that we're going to talk about right now. But for those of us who can take our cameras into manual focus mode, that's the best way around this issue. You can pick exactly where you want your focus point to be, and it doesn't matter what else is in front of it. It doesn't matter how light it is or how dark it is. Your camera will have that focus point. And I know, taking your camera out of autofocus, especially if you don't do it or you've never done it before, can be a really scary proposition. But it's not as scary as it would seem. Now, I wouldn't suggest doing this if you're out on a shoot and just trying to learn how to use your manual focus mode unless you absolutely have to. What I would suggest doing right now is set up your tripod somewhere in your house, set up a few objects or pick a space that has a few different layers to it and just put your camera into manual focus mode and just try playing with that focus ring. Try focusing on different subjects in the room, seeing how fast your lens falls off, how fast it focuses on things, all those sorts of stuff. It's all about learning your lenses and learning how they function and how they feel when they change focus. My 70 to 200 feels significantly different than when I pull focus on my 50 mil. Like they're just, they're two totally different feeling systems. So get there, turn into manual focus mode and start playing with it for yourself. And it's not as scary as you would seem to think it will be. All right, here we go with tip number three. And that is to watch and not freeze parts of yourself, particularly your nose to your camera. We've all seen the cartoons of kids getting their tongues stuck to light poles and fence posts and various other things like that. That's a real issue when it gets cold. 
and you can do it to yourself by accident by pressing your nose up against your camera. I have, thankfully, yet to do that, but I can see it as a real concern, particularly if you are breathing onto your camera and that is starting to freeze under the metal of the body, and then you stick a warm body part up against it, like your nose, or if you're like me and you occasionally stick your tongue out when you shoot, probably stick your tongue against it too by accident. The easiest way around this that I've found, if you are concerned, is to shoot with the live view mode on significantly more. I love using my eyepiece, but there are points when, if I'm thinking about that and I might freeze part of myself to the camera, I'll just use the live view mode. Pretty easy solution, but be careful if you do have to use the eyepiece and maybe find a way to cover up your mouth and your nose a little bit so you're not breathing on the camera as much and so your nose doesn't have the chance to touch that metal. Don't be a cartoon character is essentially the advice I'm giving you right now. So those are my three tips for you for using your camera in snowy and freezing cold conditions. Now let's move on to some of the fun we can have in the snow and the ice and some of the cool photos that we can take. Because winter is one of the only times of the year where you're going to get to create a couple of these kind of photos. So take advantage of it when it gets cold enough to do it and just have some fun with these little things that I'm about to talk with you about. Piece number one, cool shot number one, is boil some water, stick it in a thermos, something like that that's going to keep it fairly close to boiling temperature. Head outside when it's minus 30, minus 40 degrees out, and you can throw that water up in the air and it will basically instantly freeze. Time for a quick science lesson for you about why this happens, because I think it's really, really cool. So when you throw that hot water into the air, it turns into hot water droplets. And because they're so hot, these tiny water droplets start to vaporize in the air. But when it's really, really cold outside, the air can't actually hold as much water vapor as warmer air can, so the water condenses. And in extremely cold temperatures, it quickly freezes those water droplets, and then they fall as ice crystals. Which explains why when you throw boiling water all around you in a circle, it turns into this really cool ice crystal cloud thing, which just looks really cool in photos. Give it a try. You can throw it in an arc above you with the sunlight behind you. You can throw it in a big circle around you and take a photo straight down on it. There are a number of different ways. Let your creativity just rock on this one. But get out and give it a shot when it's in that, you know, negative 35, negative 40 degrees Celsius. Just make sure if you're the one in the photo or whoever your subject is or however this is all happening, that you have somewhere warm to go again afterwards because you are getting covered in ice fog and it's frigid outside. So your clothing also might get fairly wet fairly quickly. So don't expect to be outside for a long time doing this one. Make it one of your last shots of the day because you might get a little bit cold. Cool shot number two, frozen bubbles. So you can make soap bubbles and they will freeze almost instantly when they get outside, especially before they actually pop. So in warmer temperatures, we all know what bubbles look like. They go flying around, then they pop in the air, and that has to do with the warm temperatures of the air. When it's cold and when it's frigid outside, those soap bubbles don't pop. Instead, they freeze. So what happens is that when it's cold outside, the water layer actually freezes before the soap bubble pops, which means that instead of disappearing, the bubbles will actually form a crystalline structure on their inside. So they'll see, you'll see ice crystals on the inside of the bubble itself. And they'll actually crack eventually with the air inside of them rather than popping out of existence. 
just let your creativity run amok with this one. There are all sorts of really creative photos you can create with these and have fun with it. Next shooting tip for you is going to help you create a way more interesting foreground and or background for your photos. That is to use all that beautiful falling snow to create way more dynamic foregrounds and way more dynamic backgrounds and even frames for your subject. So you can do this one of two ways. Wait for when there is a big, beautiful snowfall outside. Find a subject that you want to shoot in it and go and have some fun. That's my favorite way to go about this is to wait until those big, giant, fluffy snowflakes are falling and find a friend or just go find a couple subjects out in the real world and go shoot photos and see what I can create using what is naturally occurring out there. You can also do this another way. It involves an assistant and a couple of other things. You can gather up some snow off the ground and sprinkle it in front of your subject or sprinkle it behind them all around them. It takes a little bit of fussing and getting right and takes a lot more time, but you can do it when it's not snowing outside. So either way works. My preference is when it's happening naturally. To me, it looks better. It functions better. And truthfully, I typically don't have an assistant with me to be able to do all that other work while I'm taking the photos. So I normally just wait until the snow is falling. All that snow falling directly in front of your camera, all of it falling directly behind that person, it creates these really dynamic images that add layers to your photo. And it also can really help you compose a better image. By that, I mean, you're going to get a couple of photos that look interesting where there's snowflakes directly in front of your subject, or there's things that just are kind of off about it. But timed right, done right, you're going to find that you can frame your subject with those snowflakes, that they'll fall around your subject in just such a way that it looks beautiful and fantastic and helps focus on the fact that your subject is there. It helps focus your image towards them. So use those snowflakes to your advantage. It's a fantastic way to add an extra compositional element to your photo. Staying on the snow, just because that's one of the main elements that you can utilize in your photography in the winter, is to have your subject interact with it a lot. Have them blow snow towards your camera. Have them Toss a snowball towards you, not directly at your camera, but towards you. Use that snow to your advantage as a prop for your subject to interact with. And they'll add another layer of interest to your image, and it'll make people feel like they can identify with your subject. And that's one of the big things about creating engagement and creating better images is something that people can identify with and something that people can engage with on a personal level. All right, one last idea for taking some really cool winter photos that you can try out is to actually incorporate ice if you are around a lake or a river or something like that that is totally frozen over that you can walk on safely. You can actually use that ice to your advantage as a compositional piece. Now, ice doesn't reflect images back the way that water typically does, but it does spread light out really, really well. And this is a fantastic way to isolate a subject, especially if you're out doing some nighttime winter photos. So if you want to take a portrait of somebody standing on a lake with a beautiful aurora above them or beautiful night sky or something like that, you can actually set up a loom cube, uh, which is this little tiny, super bright light that you can set up, or you can use a headlamp and you can illuminate the ice surface around that person to give a basically a spotlight on them coming up from the ice and it looks spectacular and it's a nice added piece that really accentuates your person standing there 
One of the last pieces that I really think is important is if you're setting up for a long session of shooting photos, let's say you're doing some star trails, the Aurora Borealis, you're just going to hang out and see if some animals come across in the night or something, whatever you want to be doing out there taking photos for however long you're going to be out there for. Make sure you find some sort of protection, if you can, for the composition that you want. Rocks and like little alcoves, stuff like that, make fantastic wind protection. And this is important for two reasons. Reason one is for you. It's important so that you are happier, warmer, comfier. You're going to be way more likely to stay out there longer if the wind isn't howling into your face because you're totally exposed to it. Secondly, it helps protect your camera a little bit more. If you are really exposed, then your camera is too. And if the wind is howling at you and shaking you around, you got to think of what it's doing to your tripod, especially if you're setting up for star trails or aurora photos or anything else like that. There is a decent chance that it's going to cause some camera shake and really screw up your images. So if you can get into some protection from the wind for yourself and so your photos turn out better. While we're still thinking about being outside taking photographs, I want to mention one of the most important things that sits very dearly to my heart, and that is to be aware of your surroundings and to think about your safety, especially in the winter. There are so many hidden hazards that occur when the snow is falling and there's snow covering the ground. Particularly, snow can cover holes in the ground, crevices, things like that, that you can fall straight through and into. It can create cornices on ridgelines and the top of mountains, which are essentially just overhangs of snow with no solid ground beneath them. And if you stand on them, put lots of weight on them, they can very easily break away, causing you to fall. There's far too many people who are heavily injured or killed each year because they're walking out onto snow cornices without realizing that they are there. So just ensure that where you are setting up, where you are walking, is solid ground underneath of you and not snow. One other big thing to be aware of is avalanches. Make sure you are not setting up your tripod and setting up yourself in an avalanche zone. You aren't walking through them, anything like that, especially if you don't have your avalanche safety training. It is really important that you understand the risks of an avalanche coming down on top of you and where and when they can occur and how they occur. So if you're really looking to get out into the mountains or into anywhere where there's an avalanche risk, I think it's a great idea if you go get some avalanche safety training or at least some basic knowledge around what an avalanche risk looks like, how they happen, where they happen. It's fantastic training and it could very easily save your life, save somebody else's life. And avalanches can occur in the front country. They can occur pretty much anywhere that there is a mountain and there is the right conditions for them to happen. So don't think that just because you're not heading out into the backcountry that there isn't a risk of them occurring. You have to be aware at all times whenever you're out in the mountains of avalanches, cornices, hidden crevices, all that kind of stuff. This isn't to try and scare you away from getting out and taking photos. This is just me wanting as many people as possible to be aware and be safe while they're out creating things. I want to try and reduce the risk of injuries as much as possible. Of course, people are still going to get hurt. We're going out, we're adventuring, we're doing awesome, fun things, and it's inevitable that people get injured. But the more awareness we have and the more awareness we have of our own safety and other people's safety, the less we are going to run into huge catastrophic injuries and deaths that could have been avoided 
with some simple knowledge and a little bit of training. All right, we've done it. We've prepared, gotten dressed, gotten out there. We've gone out. We've taken some beautiful photographs, hopefully. We've enjoyed the weather. We've had some fun. We've snowshoed, cross-country skied, gone hiking, gone ice climbing, gone done whatever spectacular winter sport you want to get involved in. And now you're coming on home. So there's two things to really think about either before you walk back into your warm house or before you get into your soon-to-be warm car. And it's about protecting your camera. So if we are out somewhere where it's negative 20, let's say, and you get back into your house where it's probably 20 degrees, 22 degrees Celsius inside, that's a 40 degree temperature difference for your camera. And if it warms up really suddenly, you can get some moisture problems inside your camera or inside the lenses. And you really don't want that. It's not a high probability of having something happen, but there is that risk. So there's two ways we can help avoid this. Back to those plastic bags we talked about at the very beginning of all of this, when we were packing our bags, you can put your camera gear inside of those plastic bags, trap it with some cold air from the world around you while you're still outside your house or outside your car, and leave them in those plastic bags until they warm up to room temperature. And that typically will take a few hours. You can also leave your camera in your camera bag. I particularly have an internal camera unit that a lot of companies are starting to make, and I leave it zipped up inside of that. And it seems to function great because it traps that cold air inside of with it, and everything can raise up to room temperature together. Now, you don't want to be opening either of those bags, either your backpack or your plastic bags, until that camera is up at room temperature. So if you want to start editing and uploading your images right away, take the memory card out first, tuck it somewhere safe, and then you don't have to worry about it. Just set your gear aside for the night when you get home. You should be ready to go and shoot more in the morning. And that's really the only non-editing big thing you got to think about when you get home. Besides dry everything out, hang it up, make sure everything's clean and ready to go so you can get back out there again and do this all over again. Because it's winter and there's so many different changing scenes that you can create. And that's it. That is my tips for you about winter photography. Whew, there was a lot of that in there. And as I sit here, there's probably a little bit more information I could give you. Especially around trip planning and stuff like that. We'll probably get to that in an upcoming episode here. But for now, I don't want to sit inside any longer and do this. I'd rather get out into the cold weather that is flying back over Calgary again right now. And go and take some photographs. That's winter photography. It's not as scary or intimidating as it might seem from the outside. And I really hope that these tips and ideas that I've presented to you here today help you get out there and create some spectacular photographs. Winter is one of the best times of year to go and take pictures. So go and take advantage of this time. This has been episode number three of the Travel and Adventure Photography School podcast. I'm your host, Robert Massey. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'd love to hear all about your winter photography adventures and what you have enjoyed doing in the winter or what you're looking forward to doing in the winter, depending on where you are in the world. Drop me a line, get a hold of me, send me some photos. I'd love to see what you are up to and chat with you about it. You can find us online at the Travel and Adventure Photography School.com, Travel Adventure Photography School on Facebook and Travel Adventure Photo School on Instagram. As always, those links will be up in our show notes. We'd love for you to give us a follow and hang out with us. I just want to build up a community of adventurous-minded photographers who want to get out and travel and be in our world more. So let's chat. Now, go grab your camera and get out into that beautiful world of ours. Let's adventure. <laughs>